and I, I moved from the city into art partly because I thought it would be kind of academic and nice and I'd get to read things and spend time learning and it was just it was bang bang it became very newsy uh, it was I, I have not had a quiet life I'll tell you that for free from Arcata, this is The Bigger Picture, an inside look at the businesses that make the art world work and the stories behind the people that shape them. Today we are joined by Melanie Gerlis, art market columnist and reporter at the FT, editor-at-large of the art newspaper and author of Art as an Investment and more recently, The Fair Story. Thank you for joining us. As you know, we're looking at different careers in the market. And I think what's so fascinating and interesting about your career is that you obviously started with a clear passion for culture. Uh, You did your English literature degree at Cambridge and you had a place lined up to do an MA in museum studies at Courtauld. But then you moved into the finance sector. So you worked in a public relations uh, firm, Finsbury, for 10 years. And then you kind of moved back into the arts through journalism. So to wrap our heads around that a little bit, initially, I'm kind of interested to know what drove you towards English literature. And then from there, how you got into finance? <laughs> Thanks, Ria. Yes, I mean, I, I think I'm a great lesson in you, you don't have to do what you're going to do eventually at the beginning. Um, you can chop and change. Um, but having said that, I mean, I, I studied art history at school when I was 14, from from the age of 14, I did it for GCSE and for A-level. And I, I was always captivated, actually, by it. But at the time, and we are talking, you know, 1980s, dare I say, I and early detail. 90s, it was not... <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm gonna, I'll give it away in some of this. But it wasn't seen as a, as an, a proper academic subject. Even at my school, at the time, you either did history or art history um and it was tended to be the clever kids did history because they were timetabled at the same time and you know and the rest of us did did art history um and i you know anyway i could bang on about changes in education since uh, i'd love to say that had changed completely but it seems to have uh, gone swings and roundabouts but i so i i but when i got my offer from cambridge they didn't include my art history a level that's how, and even at the time I had thought about, you couldn't do a three-year degree in art history at Cambridge. Um, since that, that that did change, but you couldn't at the time. So I always just thought, fine, and I loved English. You know, English literature and um, art history aren't completely miles apart. Um, I was very happy to be doing that, but I thought I'll always keep it. I'll always keep it in the in the back of my head. And then I graduated. I graduated in 1996, uh, which was a time when there were so many jobs around. If you knew what a computer was and had a halfway decent degree, you could get a job anywhere. And, you know, these companies used to come to Cambridge and kind of, even if you were an English literature student, beg you to go and earn pots of money doing something you really didn't understand at all. I mean, I knew nothing Nothing about the city, nothing about stocks and shares. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But having said that, I didn't do that. I did, as you say, I had a place to go to the court old, um, but I had taken a year out to earn some money because I didn't didn't have any money. So to then study another year, I needed to save up. And I, it was it was one of my many accidents, career accidents, which is I was temping for this company called Finsbury, which you know advised they advise financial or any company that has financial that has stocks and shares or a presence in the financial world they advise them on their communications on their pr and their investor relations and i was typing for them and filing for them um and they said do you want to do you want to stay and it's a lot of money if you do and i just thought maybe i'll come back to that art history thing um and that was really that was that was it it was a brilliant time and everyone was, you know, in their 20s and, and young and, you know, wanted things just, you know, you worked very, 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 very hard and you played very, 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 very hard and you made a lot of money. It was superb. <laughs> it was like many years ago now, that sort of moment. I think especially when, you, when you're when you in the news today, I've listened to like just the news this morning. It's, it's just different times. It must have been quite... Uh... It's, it's extraordinary... It is extraordinary to think about, which is just the sense that, and I worked very long hours, very, very, very long hours. Um, And I knew people who worked all night, you know, I mean, it was not unknown. But you did it because you knew at the end of the day, you'd get rewarded. 
Um, and now I think it must be so difficult for people to, to, to you know, to look at how hard you probably have to work and for what. I, I, there was just a sense of progress uh, in the late 90s and into really until the crash of 2008. And I was I was lucky that, that my first career, my first 10 years of career were at that time. You were working with communication, so obviously your writing skills were being pulled on quite heavily. But the context you were working, mm. a lot of data, a lot of numbers, very sweeping statements here, but traditionally sort of arts and humanities and sort of maths and sciences have been seen as quite distinct skill sets. I think that's changing, but you are <laughs> quite unusual in that you're really comfortable working at really high levels of data and numbers, but also writing obviously very fluent, fluently and comfortably in art history. Have you always felt like that in both areas? I think what I've always said about the art market, there's an expression, isn't there, that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, and I think I went into the art world and, I, you know, yes, numbers didn't frighten me. I could, I knew what a balance sheet was. I was never particular. I couldn't have been an accountant. I was never particularly brilliant, but I get it. I can, I, I can look at a page of numbers and work out what's up, what's down and what, you know, what's missing. Um, and that was helpful. Um, and I think in a way, I think there's a bit of a false, you know, we shouldn't separate. And it comes from the art world as well. I mean, you get artists who say, I didn't do numbers. And you get creatives who think it's sort of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's not. It's really, really important. And uh, sure, get someone else to do it for you. Brilliant. But it's going to help you. You know, at the time when I started out, again, it just really helped me understand a world. The art world was financializing. Um, and it helped me be able to see really when actually when people were just using words because they sounded clever and financial. And it helped me see that some of it was nonsense, which I think was quite important. I think that's very important. Um, I mean, I think you're underplaying how, or downplaying how rare it is to have that confidence. I think finance just as a subject matter it it can be quite daunting I think particularly if you're from an arts background um Mm. and at the time um when you started writing about sort of the art market talking about numbers and the price of things was actually quite rare and a bit vulgar some people would think I think it's changed massively Mm. in sort of 10 years Mm. um since you've started writing about it probably as you say in part due to that 2008 crash it sort of brought a lot of numbers to the surface but um I'm pretty confident that that being surrounded by finance must have been a really good background for you in terms of being able to ask questions where some people are nervous too it was helpful and I think also don't forget it's the language it's the language that auction houses especially were beginning to use with their clients because the people who were making money at that time were the bankers, the hedge funders, the private equity people. And I know the difference between those three things. Um, and it, it does help to be able to speak the language. It helps also not, I think, not to be frightened by it. And I was, listen, I was very lucky. I was trained. I was, when I was at Finsbury, I had accountancy training. I had, I, I, I knew about company results. And at the time, I remember Sotheby's was a public company. And I was one of the first journalists to listen to their earnings call because I knew that earnings calls happened and and analysts wrote reports. And for me, that was sort of easy stories. Um, And it helped me differentiate myself uh, in the the art world. So that was, it was helpful. So was there a moment, so you you have that training of that foundation, it's obviously a real moment and an exciting place to be. Was there a moment or um, what made you switch and suddenly think actually... I'm going to head back to the arts or was it a moment? Was it a long-term change? How did that come about? I suppose two things happened. I mean, I, I hit 30. And I think, as you know, when you, when, you, when you hit these ages with a no right, what a baby. I know, and I was like, oh, my God, am I stuck here? You start to, you start to just think, you know, when you, when you, when you hit another, another zero. Um, and I, I think I thought, you know, I'm, I am giving a lot of time. I'm giving a lot of energy to something I'm not completely passionate about. And, you know, I was good enough at it, but I was never... I never wanted to, I didn't have ambitions in that world, really, like other people did. Um, I think also, you know, to be frank, my company got bought and I got a payout, which, you know, it wouldn't 
didn't settle me for life, but it actually gave me a year off. And I mm. think, you know, I always say in order to work in the art world, it actually helps to have worked in finance first, um, just to <laughs> pay your way. That is a top tip. It's probably now tech rather than finance, you know, <laughs> do that first. Um, and yeah, I just, I just started to think, what do I want to do next? Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I, I, I Googled, you know, art and finance and actually the only place to offer it uh which was to offer an ma and i'm i'm a i will say this probably again and again i'm a great believer in education and educating yourself because in a way that's something no one can take away from you um and i found an ma in art and business at sotheby's institute um which at the time was the only one and i think uh, actually now it's the only one that is still going as strong Mm. as it is and it just seemed it had that right balance when you've worked for 10 years in a way I, I would have loved to have gone back to the court old um but I did want something that you know even though I had the money to have a year out I didn't have the money not to work again I did want them to come out and have a career so I wanted something between a kind of business school type education but also to understand the art world and the art market and everything about that. MA it was a year, which was perfect. Um, and and yeah, I mean, honestly, if I hadn't if I hadn't done that course, I wouldn't do what I do. I went in thinking I thought I wanted to run an art gallery. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to open a gallery because there is no reason from the outside when you think, why shouldn't I? Why can't I open? And then we did I, we did one thing on that course where we had to we did an Excel sheet. So again, they teach you a little bit of the finance side of things where you worked out what you have to put in and what you have to get out. And I think I worked out that I'd have to put a million, this is going back as well in time, I have to put a million pounds in and maybe in five years I'd get it out. <laughs> so I'll make even, break even. I bet that's even but more But also that you now. begin to realise it must be even worse. I think it's probably 10 million. But also you realise it's actually not, a, it's not about money. And we've seen, we've both seen, you know, business after business start in this world where someone mm. thinks if I just get a really beautiful building and have great parties and invite all my rich friends, then I'll do fine. And of course, what people don't think about is I need the artists. I need something to sell. I need to, well, either in the secondary market, you need to be able to find great things. And there's quite a lot of competition for that. Or in the primary, you know, you need to get an artist to want to share with you. How do you do that? And it's not as easy as throwing money around. So I, I yeah, I learned to, I mean, I'm now on the board of governors at Sotheby's Institute, so I'm a bit biased, but uh, that their art business course really was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, the key learning there is that it sort of burst your bubble about owning a gallery. But I presume you learned many other helpful things. Yeah, it really did. <laughs> shaped yeah. what you did next. <laughs> yeah, other than that. Thank God it burst my bubble. <laughs> um, yeah, and like I said, I think it works well for two types of people. I mean, I think you get people coming from an art background who want to learn a bit about business or you get people like me or there are people who had worked in law or you know other who had other skills that they just wanted to apply to the art world and it just it, it shows you look we all think the industry we're in is different from any other but I think the art market is one of the quirkiest out there and it just it teaches you the quirks and how you navigate them um, and, and yeah hopefully enjoy them I love the art market's quirks I also think, um, I didn't go to Sotheby's Institute, but there always feels like there's a real network out there. And I think that's with a lot of these places, particularly the art world, one of its quirks is who you know. Um, and mm. I get the feeling that there's a real community around the Institute that helps and stays with you as you sort of move forward to your next steps. I think that's definitely one of its strengths. I mean, it, it it's grown. And I think at the time, you know, the Courtauld was still the place or in fact you know and then subsequently you know art history at cambridge or whatever it was there are other cliques um but the institute i mean there are people yeah i've got people who are in my year who now you know art advisor one works for hauser and worth one works for ben brand gallery and these are people that i can pick up a phone to and just say come on 
come on, tell me what's going on, or even just have a drink with and, and get some insights. Um, and I hopefully it works both ways. But it is a network. And it, it's, you know, there's a network of tutors as well. So don't forget, you're, it's a very small world. So your tutors tend to be people from the world, art world, lecturers. Um, and then now, you know, hopefully, you know, now I help other students with their dissertations. So hopefully that that continues in some way. I mean, look, it's not it's not free. An MA is not free in this country and you need to live somewhere. Um, but for me, it was the best thing I, I did. And actually, it was whilst at Southwest Institute, you've, I think you've mentioned before that you saw a lecture from the former editor of the art newspaper, Christina Ruiz, and you said that sort of hooked you 100%. into art journalism. What did she say? I'm really intrigued. A hundred percent. I mean, yes, having worked out that I didn't want to run a gallery. Uh, uh, Christina Ruiz came in and gave a lecture on tomb raiding in Italy. She had gone undercover on, sort of, I think, condition of anonymity. She had done a tour with a tomb raider who had shown her, you know, this is how I do it. It takes me, you know, I plan it maybe 10 days in advance. These are the tricks of my trade. This is how I make money. I mean, it was on believable and i just thought that's what i want to do um i have just never to clarify not tomb raid journalism just in case anyone's concerned i don't think i've ever <laughs> yes this is not in praise of tomb raiding but I, I i've never done anything even that i mean christina is the ultimate investigative journalist i think i've never even done anything that deep uh within within the market but i just thought wow it's it sort of it piqued me um and then again at the time you know you at the end of the lecture and i have this a lot when at the end of a lecture people give you their their their, their business cards because you know Sotheby's institute uh, pupils are quite they're quite savvy and say you know can i can i do an internship and uh you know i'm a freelancer so i can't do that but christina went yeah sure pop in um so i did and and really that and I did my internship at the art newspaper, I think, for two, three months, you know, no, no money uh, in, in those days. Um, and then while I was there, or just after I left, Georgina Adams said she was leaving as art market editor. Um, and it just, it, things fell into place. I, I like writing. And the thing that the thread between all these, dis, all these, all the disparate things we're talking about, there is a, the one thread throughout. And actually, my advice to any would-be journalist is you've got to like writing. Um, I like writing. I like trying to distill a ton of information into mm. something readable, accessible. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it's different in journalism, very different in journalism than it was in PR, which was one of my great lessons. Um, but, I just like the idea of communicating things to people. Um, How's that was it different to PR? I think that talk. It was different to PR. I think the the my biggest learning at the art newspaper, as well as speeding me up, when I, I remember <laughs> when I when I did my first internship, they had you know what they call a nib, a news in brief, NIB, which is a hundred to one hundred and twenty words, and someone said to me, right, here's a Here's a press release. I think it was about the Maxi in, in Rome, the museum. Can you write a nib on? Uh, yeah, sure. Pull it, put all these pieces together. It took me a day to write 100 words. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm going to have to speed this up. <laughs> I'm going to have to speed this up a bit. It is also true that it can be harder to write 100 words than 1,000. But uh, it still shouldn't take a day. It's definitely <laughs> <laughs> an entire working day. Um and, and when you're a freelancer, you're paid per word. So that, that is not feasible. Um, but there, there was also, I think, also writing, in a way, writing in PR, you're almost writing to hide the truth, <laughs> uh, which is a great insight every time I read a press release. Writing in journalism, where you, I mean, and especially the art newspaper was very, very strong. Uh, is very, very strong. It's saying, what are you saying? Say it in the simplest way possible. Do use an adjective, but it better be the right adjective. Um, and just make it as clear as possible. Say what you mean. Whereas in a way, PR was say precisely what you don't mean in nice words. 
words. Lots it of words. It was a new skill. It was definitely a new skill. Lots and lots of words. <laughs> um, so I wasn't. I, I could read. I could read behind the uh, the lines in a press release, but I wasn't terribly good at re rewriting it in better ways. But yeah, I definitely learned it. Red like was- Christina Rose's red lines through my coffee. <laughs> I was about to ask, was art journalism what you thought it would be? But it sounds like it was a bit of a, a curve of learning throughout. <laughs> it was, although having said that, I mean, she remains, uh, again, if it wasn't, Christina really believed in me and that, you know, and took the time to teach me. And that was the same. I did not, I did not have journalism training. I mean, I come from a, well, yeah, my sister is a trained journalist, my partner is a trained journalist you know everyone I know is a trained journalist and none of them work in journalism anymore and they all look at me it's like how on earth is someone who is not a trained and it's like I was trained I was trained by my editors Christina trained me Jane Morris trained me they they were they they took the time and they did it which actually in art journalism isn't that unusual that quite a lot of art journalists don't come hmm. from a journalist background whereas if you go to some of the no, they either come from journalist training hmm. which is interesting Although occasionally, you know, the, the, the where, what, why, there are some tips. It's always quite, I, I occasionally, I've got a book somewhere, which is, you know, how to be a journalist. There are some tips that are quite useful, but mostly it's like, why would anyone want to read this? We've talked about sort of how the finance sector was healthy, to summarise. Mm. Um, when you <laughs> then moved into the art newspaper, how was the art market? What sort of condition was it in? And I guess reflecting back on it now, how, how is it different? Or not? Well, in a way, I mean, the art market at that time, especially, you know, contemporary art market, which was beginning to gain attention, was always a couple of years behind the financial market. So in a way, and I joined the art newspaper just before, and I did my MA just before, a few years before the crash. So coming in, I, having ridden this wave in finance, I then got to ride the wave in, um, in in the art market and to just watch it, you know, it was at the time when Roman Abramovich was buying works and, and at auction and, you know, Damien Hirst was making his skull. I mean, it really was, I, and I, I would say I did it for a quiet life. I mean, I, I moved from the city into art partly because I thought it would be kind of academic and nice and I'd get to read things and spend time learning. And it was just, it was bang, bang. It became very newsy. Uh, I I have not had a quiet life, I'll tell you that for free. Um, And it was was really, really exciting. And, and, you know, I remember when I started at the newspaper, it must have been in the, it was in the autumn, and there were people, you know, all these big name journalists that I'd heard of running around going, oh, God, we have to go to Miami. Oh, God, we have to. And I was like, why are these people moaning about going to Miami? It sounds amazing. Um, but it was at the time when suddenly there were new art fairs, you know, and the art newspaper was doing daily. And there were it had gone from being two art fairs a year to three to four. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to travel four times a year. And it's quite hard work. <laughs> And now I look back and think, gosh, travel four times a year. That would be fantastic. That would be the best. That would be chilled out. <laughs> um, so it was just, everything was just growing. And this this art was becoming fun, fashionable. I mean, it had kind of come out uh, of its nerdier, dustier roots, which I am passionate about, by the way. I'm still a bit too nerdy for the contemporary art market. Um, but it was really exciting and it was something that it wasn't just 60 year olds that were talking about. It was, you know, 30 mm. year olds. And it, it, I, I felt part of the wave actually. And all my banky friends were like, see you at freeze. You know, it was brilliant. It was really, uh, again, it was a very, very exciting time. And then I was also very aware when, you know, when I, I knew that the debt markets were wobbling, because I did even even you know, even back then, I still read the Financial Times, and it's like, oh, if the bond markets are wobbling, then that's going to start to hit share prices, and that's not good for this art market because it, it the boom came certainly in the UK and the US on the back of bankers making lots and lots of money, and if they were about to lose it, I could see I could see a wobbly time ahead, um, and that was exciting as well. I was going to say at that time, the understanding of the relationship between the art market 
and wider markets, mm. I feel was less understood because I think that moment you say it was becoming fun and fashionable. It was also sort of becoming mm. financialized in a way that people begin to talk about finance and the art market openly. Mm. I don't know if this is just my recollection or reality or, but it no, feels like completely. You, your career came at a time when actually your skill set was needed because suddenly people weren't, Obviously, people are still quiet about prices. It's always been, you know, it's not the most transparent market. Mm. But people, you know, are beginning to talk about the market as a market and all these financial terms mm. are becoming sort of vocalised. So I feel like that understanding between, you know, if the general markets are wobbling, what does that mean for the art market? You were kind of in the right place, the right mm. person in the right place at the right time to start looking at that properly. <laughs> That's not a question. I'm just embarrassing you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I think also to see, there are lots of reasons why that is true. Uh, there did used to be more of a lag between what was happening in the outside world economically and the and what was happening in the art world. Although I, I think it's always been true that where there's been a lot of money, there's been healthy, you, you look at in the Renaissance, you look at Florence in the 14th century, you look at uh, the, you know Holland in the 17th and 18th centuries it, it does uh, art production does follow money to a certain extent you need money to make art um, but I think that what two things happened one was art as a sort of pursuit as a hobby used to be what you did when you retired so in a way you, you built up your money in your life and then you sat and spent it and what had changed was that people were spending money as they earned it um, and that was why buyers became younger. They became people who worked. But a lot of the money they made also was from the financial world. So it just especially contemporary art, which was the sort of thing people, you know, new money wants to buy new art. Again, twas ever thus. But that was really, really happening at that point. Um, it, the, the, the connection was much, much quicker between the two worlds. And in terms of, okay, so beginning to understand that you're giving it a sort of language, you're comfortable with that language, the information available to you, <laughs> even working within, say, 10 years, I remember when you were climbing on a ladder, pregnant but safely, in case anyone's concerned, trying to go through all the auction catalogues to try and find old sale prices. Whereas now I feel like everything's so automated <laughs> and online. I can't really imagine, maybe you do still go up ladders. I can't really imagine that sort of scenario happening. I'm, the information available to you to look at this market and analyze it, that that's changed. Is that right? Is that fair? It, it really has. And I mean, I am, I'm still quite analog. Um, and actually, one of the great damages of everything being online um, is that you, there sometimes isn't a record. In a way, I miss a catalogue is a catalogue. That was what it was priced at. An online catalogue can be changed, can disappear, can that's it. So I, I, I'm a little ambivalent. But there is a lot more in terms of what I was looking for. It was probably just an estimate of an artwork that sold five years ago now i can google it oh, you don't even need an artnet subscription and well, sorry artnet but you don't need an artnet subscription for something for the simple fact of what did something sell for within the past 10 years you can always find that and that changed that changed buyers as well i mean that changed a lot of the uh you know the, the hidden the hidden truths having said that firstly i still people still don't tell me prices I mean, I still, I mean, this week I've written about, you know, a sale of an Ashley Bickerton from Gagosian Gallery at Art SG, which is a fair. I mean, it's a, you know, we are here selling something for a price and no one will tell me the price because, you know, they don't reveal prices. So it, 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 some things don't change and mm. some artists don't like it. Um, the, the other thing now is, you know, you can you can find out a number from auction, but what's behind that number? You know, was there a guarantee? Now, one auction house, I think it's Christie's, is not is is revealing the price that would have been paid if it didn't have a guarantee, but not the actual price that was paid. And it just becomes kind of uh, layer upon layer of of uh, misinformation. So I I think actually in a way the danger now is that there's an appearance that everything is more transparent, mm -hmm. but it's still pretty mysterious. <laughs> 
the difference is someone could be someone could be at an art fair take a photo of a picture put it on instagram and say this is priced at x so in some way there's a record and there is a kind of in a way people are are pooling together but attempts to pool primary market information together have not really taken off yet do you think they will it's part of the uh, no I think it's like a couture clothes. You know, you walk into a you walk into a shop that sells. You know, this is not your average shop, uh, and there aren't prices. And it's the same thing. It's part of the everything about selling art is about creating desire. And one way to create desire is for something to be priceless in quotes. And yeah. it's not prices. Everything has a price, um, but it's part of the marketing. The price becomes part of the marketing. Uh, I think. I think is unhelpful. I think what you what happens, especially for new buyers, and new buyers is what you know. Whatever anyone says, we need new buyers in this market. Um, it's quite off-putting, and you run the risk actually of people buying from places because there is a price rather than because it is good in that. Uh, universal general term so i i think i actually know i i wish this market was more transparent every day <laughs> but it's it's better than it was yeah because i was looking at your first book art as an investment and i think what's really interesting is the knowledge you bring of other sectors because what's tended to happen for a really long time is that the art market talks to the art market about the art market and i think the lens you offer it can bring in comparisons to different areas of investment and that's something that's becoming more and more relevant so with changing regulations obviously with anti-money laundering and the sanctions happening in Russia you know the market's been asked to come into line with the way the other sectors are behaving um, and with transparency and pricing and market analysis some of the things are becoming quite challenging and it's gonna be hard for it to behave and continue to behave in the way it always has so I guess my question is if you're going to write that early book again do you think much has changed now in terms of how it compares to the other markets? Um, would you have to um, change your uh, approach to the book at all? No, I, th- I think very little has changed. I think it, it, I would probably... I can see an argument. I mean, I, I concluded essentially that art is a very bad investment and you shouldn't buy it for money uh, <laughs> for financial reasons. Um, other other reasons to buy it, but but not... You know, it is not what everyone says it is, and there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of language used that is, I think, very misleading about art as an investment. You could probably argue that some ultra blue chip, I guess, anything that an auction house would guarantee, I guess, has become an asset. It's become a, but that's a very very tiny pool of of art, and in a way. It's financialization, if that's a word. By by making it an asset, you're sort of upping its value falsely. I think you're sort of pumping into it uh, uh, a status it doesn't rightly own. So I think that might all come crashing. <laughs> but I've been saying that for you know I've been saying that for 25 years. But I just I, I just think you can't have it both ways. I think you have to choose. Either this is a market of passion and. Um, subtlety and nuance and excitement and unique experiences or you want to you make it like stocks and shares and you give the price of everything i just think there are it doesn't those of us in the art market know it doesn't function like that and this is you know i am not a tech expert i'm not an nft expert i'm not a you know what's the thing now that everyone is you know all this breaking breaking art up tokenization this is now the new language right you know if you're coming into this market now that's where you want that's what you want to understand you want to understand the blockchain and and but i think it's the same thing i did there isn't enough good art to go around there's no underlying use for art you know it's Mm -hmm. beautiful it's amazing it does things that other things that you know the, the reason why i'm not in finance but i am in art to go back to your earlier question is because standing in front of a francis bacon does something to me that weirdly writing about stocks and shares going up doesn't and i feel very privileged to be able to do that but it's not about yeah it's not about money and i think there are really high prices and that invites you know maybe greed is what it invites and there are clearly you know the auction houses are amazing the what they can churn over and the big galleries 
I just you, do, you just can't have it both ways, and that's not what our market is about. And we sort of talked the a truth, bit about though, to go back to. <laughs> no, let's have sorry, the truth. To go back to, the, well, the, the truth is also it's not free. You can't buy art is expensive. So you need to talk about it in financial terms, you know, in terms of you could buy a yacht, you could buy a holiday, you could buy a watch. If I if I wrote my book again, I'd do a section on watches and a section on horses. I would compare those mm-hmm. markets as well because they're also fascinating markets. But, you know, people are choosing to spend their money on art. Why? That's super interesting. It costs money. And, and what, what is collecting? What is the collecting gene? What do these objects mean to people i I think the collecting gene is fascinating but uh, if you just want to buy art to make money then good luck and yet even just saying it i think it's um the question and the discussion of it feels so much more normalized than 10 years ago like if you if you talk about art that's true well i had people so crude yeah yeah, but you see, that doesn't help either. Yeah, yeah, you're you're getting me on all the all the conflicts. I mean, people are spending their money on it, and I think pretending art doesn't cost money mm. is um, is <laughs> delusional. Um, and that that's why I think I think t- tell everyone the price of it, and then just get that conversation out of the way. I mean, if yeah. I want to Google the price of uh, uh, you know uh, Vacheron Constantin watch, I can do that. Um, but that's not people don't buy a watch till time and people don't buy a watch because it's mm-hmm. useful. But these things have have a value. What is that? Right. Get that conversation out of the way. But no, I agree. I, I still there's still a slight sense that that money is a dirty word, but it it's it's definitely. Yeah, you can't. As I said before, you can't open a gallery without money. You can't visit an art fair without a plane ticket. Um, yeah. It's an experience. You know, that's it. Brilliant. And we've talked about quite a bit about how the art market's changed and the finance sector, actually. But from a journalist's Mm. point of view, you write for the FT now um, and you still do work for the art newspaper. Over your career, the actual shape of the journalist industry, I know you weren't traditionally trained in that, but, you know, you've you've been in journalism quite a while now. How has that changed in terms of... (laughs) The type of information people want around the art market and how they want to consume it. I mean, I think the thing we we have, when I started at the art newspaper, it was a monthly publication. Uh, There was no, there was no, it had no website. Um, So you would, you know, and you would write for this monthly publication and when it closed, it closed because it had to go to the printer and then it got printed and then you'd start it again. And that was, that was your cycle. Um, you were sort of it was sort of two weeks of insane work and two weeks of kind of quite gentle gathering <laughs> whereas now it is you know we are day to day insane I mean even at the FT I I have a deadline of Tuesday uh, the column goes online on a Thursday and then it's not in print till Saturday and often by Saturday what I've written is such old news I'm amazed anyone still, wow. still picks it up so keeping that relevant is is it's really the news cycle is really it's constant it is constant and fairs are constant you know the the the, the uh, you know this summer our summers were all interrupted because freeze had an, uh, a fair in seoul in september mm. christmas was interrupted because art sg has opened you know with the, these periods of time that used to be quiet there is no such thing as a quiet time and in fact it's during the quiet times in the art market that the top executives leave Sotheby's and Christie's. And that's actually when the big news happens. So it's definitely become, it's definitely become busier, um, faster. Um, The PR machine has become much bigger and more powerful. Um, I I, I find the, the, the sort of, the, the, the respect for journalism, I feel, is slightly disappearing. Um, from who respect but from we do what we can, you know. Generally, yeah, I think from from everyone. I think they're fed up, and I get it. That you know that that you know, I know if if you get a review in the New York Times for your gallery show, that increases your visitor numbers by 
I don't know, 10, 20 times. I know there's a power, there's a power in the in the press. And I think a lot of people are trying to take that into their own hands at the same time as newspapers are, you know, famously cash strapped and trying, you know, trying to do something digital for which they get less advertising or less expense, less ex- lucrative advertising. And I, I, I think, yeah, I think it's harder to be an independent journalist now than it used to be. Your work benefits from taking that time to look, as you say, behind the PR. That's what sort of set you apart in that you understood the PR machine around finance and the market and having that time and your catalogues and a ladder and digging down and spending that time is where the story is and where the information is. So I guess the risk with journalism that's working on this churn is that you don't get time to actually reflect and analyse, which to some extent is what the art newspaper, but also the FT really um, thrives on, your work thrives on. I I think, well, I, what I hope is that, I mean, the natural, because in a way, anyone can be a journalist, you can in a 100, you know, sometimes if news comes out on a Thursday morning, and it's way too late for my column, but by the following week, it would be old, I just put it on Twitter in 140 characters, or however many you're allowed now, and just without, you know, anyone can do that. So hopefully, actually, analysis, investigation, breaking is still, there's still some but hopefully, you know, we come out of it the other side. Uh, I just, yeah, exactly as you say, we, 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 that takes time. I mean, that's, you know, writing books is not, is neither lucrative nor a laugh a minute. But the reason to do it is you can really, really dive deeply <laughs> into things. On that, I wanted to talk about career moments yeah. that are particularly challenging or... Yeah, let's go with challenging, but in a rewarding way. And I was assuming, wrongly or rightly, that your books, you know, two now, may have been some of those moments for you. And I wondered what that experience was like. And obviously, would you do it again? You might still be in recovery stage from the last one. (laughs) I am still, as I keep saying to people, there were seven years between the two books. So just assume (laughs) another six years from the next one. Exactly. I I think, I mean, listen, that my last book I wrote in lockdown and the truth of it is I wasn't jumping on airplanes. I wasn't even jumping on trains. Um, I didn't have a school run. You know, I mean, I had <laughs> some children. Are you homeschooling? That they, Harder, they discovered, right? Yeah, they discovered computers. Oh, but I, I took the view that yeah, you, you do what you, it's up to the school, not up to me. You can't homeschool three children. You just can't. Uh, so in some way I was lucky because it was like, no, I can't. Um, yeah, but even I, I just wasn't out. So I had a lot more time. Um, and that's why I was able to write a book. I, I, and that is food for thought. You know, all these, all these. And the art market is, is, a, is a caravan and we go to a lot of places and we do a lot of things. But I, thinking, I definitely think more about the time, <laughs> my time now. Um, but I know, but and also this is not... Uh, you know, some of the high points of, of my career have been being at an art fair in, you know, a country I hadn't been to before and seeing some of my other colleagues and or other gallerists and having a laugh. I mean, we it's an incredibly fun world when, when you're in the right place at the right time. There's nothing like it. So I'm not I'm not saying please stop sending me <laughs> flights for press trips. Uh, it's just the balance. <laughs> And time. It's all about time, isn't it? It is all about time, yes. Um, So we've talked a lot about your work, um, and I'm going to embarrass you now, about the way you work. Um, Mm. Journalism, the art market, they both have reputations, again, wrongly or rightly, for being quite competitive, for um, individuals being quite... Mm focused trying to be polite um the way in which you work you are very collaborative and you've got a reputation for being very collaborative and sort of nurturing you've already mentioned that you've worked you know you help students with dissertations you always make time for people is that something that's important to you is that just your natural personality my natural personality is that i'm a bit of a solo operator um but i learned really early on and again it helped coming out of finance i came out of quite 
a backstabbing industry at the time. I think even that's improved. But at the time, you know, you were remunerated by the business you brought in and the clients you had. So you kept your, you know, you kept your contacts close to your chest. And I remember when I started at the art newspaper, um, I was taking over from Georgina Adam, whom we know, whom we know well. Um, and she had this carrier bag full of business cards and she tipped them onto my desk and she said, these are all the people you need to know. Use any of them. And, I, I, oh. from, and it was so, it was amazing. It was amazing to me. So in a way, I was, I was taught straight away, if you, you know, if you collaborate, things are better for you. Um, and I, so it's not completely altruistic. <laughs> it is with, I, I just cannot think of another way to work now. I, I, you never know who is going to be important in your life. Ever. And this is, you know, this is why even if you have to grab Starbucks for people on an internship, just do it nicely and with a smile. I'm not saying be a walkover and, you know, please make make sure you're paid. But just you never know who's going to quite a lot of the juniors that, that came I came across when I was at the art newspaper. And now I now write for you know, they're not my editors. Um, co- collaboration works both ways. And if you're collaborative with people, they'll be collaborative back to you. Um, I, I suppose it's my, my, it is more my personality. So my way of working is I'm definitely a solo operator. But if you've been on an art newspaper, daily paper, where 10 of you are in a room and you have to produce 20 pages of copy, the only way to do that quickly and well is to talk to each other, sit with each other, and lit- I mean, literally two of you on a computer screen. Now, that may not be that, you know, I would have thought that was my idea of hell, but I <laughs> produce things quicker and better that way than any other way. So I, uh, you know, it, it's, it is the way I work. It's, I, I believe in people. I just believe in people. So, and I think if you believe in people, they believe in you back. There's obviously quite a lot of mini males out there who want to sort of replicate your career or are really fascinated in what you do, whether it's from a journalistic point of view or the subject matter you cover. Do you have any advice? Would that be your advice to them? Don't say don't do Very it. Nice poor mini males. But no, I, would, I won't say didn't do it. I, I would say, listen, I have been lucky in, in ways we've discussed. I was lucky to leave university when there were more jobs than brains. I was lucky that, you know, I started in the art world when it was becoming financialized. Um, You know, some things have fallen well for me, but all along I've worked unbelievably hard. I'm annoyingly hard worker and I'm annoyingly organized. Uh, and just, uh, you know, I file on time. I mean, I always say that the reason <laughs> the reason I, I have all this work is because I file on time into the word count. You know, when you're told, do this number of words for this date, that's what I do. Um, and that goes a long way. And being presentable and being on time, you know, these are, yeah, I just think that's the basic. Now, I know times are changing. I do know times are changing, but I, I and I don't really believe, I don't believe in the quiet quitting uh, phenomenon. And I get, I do get that work itself is less rewarding because there's less work out there and it's harder to find jobs and you're not paid as much. But if there's something you like, firstly, become an expert in it. Even mm-hmm. if it is, like I say, even if you're really good at getting coffee for Starbucks, just be the best person at getting coffee from Starbucks. Or writing um, nibs. Yeah, or writing. And if, exactly. And you know, you like, get better at it. Read, read, find a way to be better at what you do if you like it. And then, you know, I, I, I yeah, education. I, as I said before, I really believe in education. I really believe in being collaborative. And I actually, in journalism, and in all th- ask the stupid question is my top tip, which is that people will try and sort of fob you off a bit with, uh, you know, such and such and such. And then actually you don't. And what you say is I don't. Could you tell me, just be prepared to just be, yeah, if you don't know something, ask. Always, mm. always ask questions. And that's maybe, that's maybe what made me a journalist is I ask a lot of questions. You've done quite a lot so far in your career. Uh, what's your next steps? Step? Don't say give up. That's not allowed. 
and I'm a mother of three. My next step is dinner, um, and that is a reality. And you know, you talk, you know, you talk about the challenges, and I, I, I think parenting and working uh, is is challenging. Um, I'm just, I'm really, really lucky that I love what I do, um, and I actually don't sit day in day out and think what's my five year plan. I think the other great lesson from the pandemic. <laughs> is there's almost no point in having a five-year plan. Mm. And I'm not saying it's about just about survival. It, it, it's about just make the most of what you do. Um, if you're not happy, change it. But don't, don't wait. You know, f- just find ways. I, I, you're in control. I am in control of my destiny. But I don't, I don't have a grand plan. I'm really, really sorry. I don't have wow, a grand plan actually, beyond dinner. And, I, yeah, I love what I do. <laughs> Your parenting <laughs> point, just to pick up on it, you wrote an amazing article. You mm. obviously not just one, but you wrote one that was really I think it resonated <laughs> with a lot of people. Um I think it got quite a lot of social media traction. I definitely it resonated mm. with me. You wrote one, I think it was in the first pandemic around lessons learned mm. from the pandemic, slowing down, mm. work life balance. Mm. And I think you were saying you'd learned a lot in the pandemic around the balance and the pace of things. And taking that forward, mm. is that something you have taken forward just out of nosy? I'm doing quite well. I'm doing quite well. I, 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 I find it hard to say no. Um, so I've learned to say no. Uh, and I find it hard not to be everywhere all the time. But mm. it's not as hard as being everywhere all the time. We don't have to be. You yeah. do not have to be everywhere for everyone all the time. And if you do, and you don't, if you do and you love it, brilliant do it if you do and you don't love it then change because we only have one life um it it depends look everyone has completely different circumstances and you can you do you don't have to be at every private view i think the pendulum i don't know let's see the pendulum swung too much back everyone at the end of last year was exhausted everyone at the end of summer was exhausted and it's like why are we doing this and it's partly because we've forgotten how to do it and travel has become difficult and blah 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 and it's just like don't do it don't see what happens yeah maybe that's my five-year plan my five-year plan is see what happens if you don't do everything and if it's untenable you know you rethink but i'm i'm and things are it's always better to write about things you've seen it's always when you go to things you get lots of tips but you don't have to do that every day you need to write you need to read and make Mm. dinner for your children (laughs) i'm going to end on that because that's great life advice (laughs) so thank you so much i I really appreciate it i know you've got a lot on and it's been wonderful speaking (laughs) to you i'm feeling very inspired thank you for listening You can follow and subscribe to The Bigger Picture wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about this episode or to reach out to us directly, please visit us at arcata.com.